That's awesome, isn't it? Uh, I'm a converted atheist up until uh, I grew up in a multi-generational secular Australian family. I've never, ever forgotten what lost feels like. I really mean that. Uh, by that uh, I only put my trust in Jesus just before I turned 19, and I was writing poetry by the ripe old age of 16 about the purposelessness of life. That, that was the theme of my poetry, that it's just a... Um, now, I reckon we get to know each other a little bit uh, by hearing about um, professional failures. There's nothing quite like kind of a moment of vulnerability. So I'm going to share one of my wife's. <laughs> well, at least it was, at, least it was, at least it was her company's. For a couple of years, she worked with a funeral company. I'm not going to name which one. And uh, I know, I know um, uh, funeral and uh, kind of those sort of stories are tender stories, but I think you'll be able to cope with this one. It's, it's the cemetery's job to cut the hole the right size. And uh, so they were, they were driving towards the cemetery. They'd already had the Thanksgiving service and must have been a learner digger because he cut the hole. It was the right width and the right depth, but about a foot too long. And to cover up for his mistake, and I don't know why he would need to cover up that mistake, he just put the fake grass over the end. You can see where this is going, can't you? And so the, the funeral directors get there, they arrive first to the hearse and, and they put a couple of bars across and they carry the coffin and they put it on the bars. And as one funeral director walks back to the hearse, the other one walks around the end of the coffin, shoosh, straight down to the hole he goes. He, like he actually hurt himself, he broke his toe, he grazed himself, but he managed somehow to crawl his way up out of the grave hole and he was out already by the time his colleague came back from the hearse, but he's dirty and he's dusting himself down so his colleague walked around to see what had happened to him. Whoosh, he went down the hole as well. And now the family is starting to arrive as the second funeral director is crawling out of the grave. And uh, I, I was joking and I was chatting to the guy who was the second one crawling, crawling out of the hole and I said, you just needed to have a quickness of thought as the family arrived in to go, Everything's okay down here. Most companies don't check once, but we check twice. You know? <laughs> My worst ever professional mistake was conducting a wedding for a couple from the community. And it was on, on what was normally my day off, but the, the wedding was going to be at one o'clock in the afternoon at a community venue, think of a local park here in Lonnie, and, uh, but where we lived was on the Mornington Peninsula, which has got surf beaches all over the place, and I was a surfer, so I decided that morning to go for a surf, which was fine. Uh, there was plenty of time to go for a surf and come home, get cleaned up and go to the wedding. Uh, you know, the timeline worked just fine, but I, w I went for a surf by myself. And it was the middle of winter, like temperature not dissimilar to outside, you know, top temperature of 12 sort of thing. I had a nice thick wetsuit, so that was fine. Locked everything in the car. I went to an out-of-the-way place where there's, in the, especially in winter, like no one goes there. And when I came in from my surf, because you keep, I had a little key holder inside my wetsuit, kind of behind my neck, and I picked, unzipped the wetsuit, peeled it down to my waist, went to the key holder, and the key was gone. Now I'm, out, I'm locked out of my car, I'm in the middle of nowhere, uh, there was a couple of fishermen on the beach, they didn't have a phone with them, and I am stuck. Now I'm not just a little bit stuck, I'm really stuck, because I'm kilometres from anything. And uh, I was stuck for several hours, to the point where I was missing the wedding. And I was hypothermic. Occasionally a car would drive into the car park and I would sprint over to them, peeled to my waist, in a wet wetsuit in the middle of winter, People were scared 
as I ran towards them. Some people just drove away. One gentleman, I told him what had happened, and he took Edie's phone number and he said, I'll call your wife when I get home. And then he forgot. And about an hour later, he called her and he said, oh, your husband's locked out of his car. I meant to call you an hour ago, but I forgot. Well, but by this stage, I have missed the wedding. I've missed the bride has arrived, she's burst into tears, they're driving around the country while they're trying to find a minister, they thought I'd been in a car accident or something like that. And, uh, and, but finally, I actually needed to go to the bathroom, because there was a public toilet there, and I went into the public toilet, and when I dropped my wetsuit and I had Speedos on, you know how they say in that, in that uh, fairy tale, a princess can feel a pee under ten mattresses? Well, just to prove how cold a day it was, I could not feel a car key in the crutch of my Speedos. <laughs> that was my worst ever professional mistake. Now, for some people, their mistakes become the narrative of their life. Not only is it their mistake, as in something that they have done, but for some people, it's what happened to them becomes the narrative of their life. Every one of us has a voice that runs inside of our heads. I call it the, the Goliath that lives in your head. It's the Goliath that lives between your ears. Now, for some, some of you here today, because everyone has this, there's a narrative. They say the vast majority of a woman, when they stand in front of a mirror, is unhappy with what she sees. There's a narrative happening between your ears. That's true of men as well, by the way. I, I can remember as a teenage boy, I was, I was really, really thin. I grew a whole lot in one year and I was really thin. But my best friend was an early developer. At the age of 13, he could grow a full beard. And he had a muscular adult male body at the age of 13. He was a state sprinter, a state AFL footballer, and a state swimmer. And he had muscles on his muscles. And I was so skinny, if I turned sideways, you could hardly see me. And I remember when I stand in front of the mirror, I, like, I was just so disappointed about what I would see. That is a narrative in, in our head. I, I thought my ears stuck out too much, you know. There's, there's, there's so many things that we say to ourselves. I'm not going to give you a neuroscience lesson here, but your, your memories are stored in what's called the hippocampus of your brain and your experiences in, uh, um, uh, in the amygdala, or the amygdala, a couple of them. But the pathway that connects your awareness to them is called your neural pathways. Now, if you have a really extreme negative experience, a major highway will be blazed straight to that memory. Unlike having to learn your times tables, yeah, we've got to do it over and over and over and over and over. You know, I, I memorized my, up to my 12 times tables while I was still at primary school, 8756, I don't have to think about it. I've just got a highway to that number, that that's what 870, 9763, I've just got a highway to it. But that was by driving it over and over and over. But if you have a, an extreme experience, a major highway is established quite spontaneously. I have some of those, and so do you. Now, on that, on that major highway, for some of you, it's to do with sexual abuse. For some of you, it's to do with a marriage that failed. It's that your partner was unfaithful to you or you were unfaithful to your partner. It's that someone dudded you in a business deal and just set you back so far financially. It's, it's, it's the day that the doctor sat across the desk from you and said, I'm so sorry to tell you this, but you have cancer. Or that was said to your partner, your partner who's now deceased, or your parent who's deceased. You know, there's nobody in this room, unless they're particularly young, who hasn't at some point in time had somebody that they love who's passed away. It's life. It's what happens to us. You know, I, I actually need to confess to you today. I, I'm, I'm dying. I'm dying. 
You are as well, by the way. So we're in, the, in the all in this together. So I don't have a date or anything. I, I just don't, oh, I shocked somebody then, didn't I? That's, but we all are. I got no, you know, we don't know when we're going to die. But, we've, but, but for some, we've had a significant experience and it's blazed the major pathway and it becomes the narrative of our life. It's the Goliath that lives between our ears. It's your father who said to you, you're pathetic, you're useless, you're good for nothing, your life's never going to amount to anything. It's, it's, it's what happened to, it's the, it's the teenage mistakes that you made. It, it, was the, it was the substance you took, the sex you had, the lie you told, the thing you stole, the, that demonstration of unfaithfulness where you didn't even live up to your own standards, let alone God's standards, and a major highway gets established there, and it's that voice inside your head. It's that which you say to yourself, I'm pathetic, I'm a failure. I'm... And you know what that starts to do? That starts to shape the potential of your future. And there are certain things you won't do because of that voice. There's certain risks you won't take. There are things you won't aspire to. I don't know any of you, oh, and, and very few of you. I do know a couple of you, not many. I don't know the vast majority of you. But, so I have no idea where you're at in your faith journey. But for some of you, you'll be saying to yourself, I'm not good enough for God. I want you to understand this. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I want you to know this. It says God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't matter what you've done. You cannot out-sin the sacrifice of the sinless son of God. You are not the global exception. You're not the global exception. You can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can be forgiven. God knows you. Jesus said, there's no sparrow that lands on the ground. My father knows about it. And he said, you're far more important than a sparrow. The Bible says things like he writes your name in a book, catches your tears in a bottle. He, he, he knows what you're going to say before you say it. The number of days ordained for your life, the Bible says, are written in his book. God knows you and he's for you. And he's demonstrated it in Jesus. But we get this narrative like, oh, God doesn't love me because of what happened in my life. God doesn't love me because of the stuff that went down in my life. Oh, God doesn't care about me. Or I couldn't be a follower of Jesus because of my failures. And it's Goliath living in your head, shouting these things to you because of the narrative of your history. The, the Negro spiritual, nobody knows the troubles I've seen, is not supposed to be your life anthem. You don't need to live a narrative of defeat your entire life. You don't need to do that. Now, I call it the Goliath that lives in your head. You might not know where to find it in the Bible, but there's this spot in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Most people know the story that uh, young David kind of killed this giant called the Goliath, and, uh, and they kind of know that They might. You might know that story. He's a shepherd boy, and, and, and he does this remarkable thing. I actually want to go to the pre-story with regards to Goliath's shout. And I, and I want to use this as a bit of a metaphor for all of us. Let's check out what the Bible says here. It says, so the, the Philistines, that was one people group, and the Israelites faced each other off on opposite hills. Now, you, if you've never been to that kind of part of the world, they've got some really um, uh, like cliff-like uh, valleys where you've got a flat valley and you've kind of got these cliffs, and they're not necessarily that far away from each other. And this is what was happening with these, with these armies. 
And uh, they're, on opposite, they're on opposite hills, and the battlefield is down there. They can see and hear each other. Then Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He's over nine feet tall. The guy's got some growth hormone challenges. He's big. He's really, really big. And he wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of male weight, 125 pounds. What's that? That's a little under 60 kilos. Uh, he also wore bronze leg armor. He carried a bronze javelin on, it, on his shoulder. The shaft of the spear was like... Uh, as heavy and as thick as a weaver's beam, uh, tipped with an iron spear that weighed 15 pounds, about 7 kilos, just the tip on that thing. His armour bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Okay, full-on intimidation. That's all we're establishing there. The guy is intimidating, totally intimidating, just like the challenge of your life. What is your Goliath? What is your challenge? What is it that takes you to your edge and that makes you feel afraid? And I'm not talking about your fear of heights here or your arachnophobia. Like, I try not to be afraid of huntsmen, but, oh, gee whiz, when they run past, they scare the heebie-jeebies out of me. If they're really little, I can grab them with my hand. And then there's this kind of this little zone where it's just not possible anymore. And I squeal and, and just run and stuff. Anyway, what intimidates you and what stops you from stepping in to the best version of you. What's your Goliath? I can actually tell you whatever specifically it is, behind it is your ego. Ego masquerades as fear because the fear is actually the fear of the damage it will do to our person, to our reputation. We're afraid of failing. We're afraid of what people will think of us. We're afraid, if you're a follower of Jesus, so many followers of Jesus are afraid actually to let anybody else know about it. And it's actually... they. they it presents as fear. They think, oh, I'm afraid. It's actually their ego because they don't want their ego to get dinted. We're fascinating people, aren't we? So, so here's, here's the challenge. So it says, Goliath stood and shouted and taught it across the Israelites. Why are, you all, why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I'm a Philistine champion, but you choose, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come here and fight me. He said, come, we'll do a representative thing for each nation. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. So there's the challenge. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you'll be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me, he says. And look at this. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Saul particularly, because he was head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the community. We're told that earlier. So Saul's a big guy. Big guy from the Philistines steps out. Saul's standing there amongst all these people. He's head and shoulders above everyone else. He's a big, you know, he's probably 6'8", 6'10", whatever. He's kind of standing amongst the crowd like this. Just, you know. And um, so look at this. It says, for 40 days, every morning and evening. So how many times did he do the taunt? 80. 80 times. The Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army early in the morning. It says, David, this is teenager, left the flock in care of a shepherd, loaded up a set uh, and set out as Jesse had directed as his dad. When he reached the camp, as the army was, and it's, now I want you to read this bit with me, as the army was going out to its battle position, say it with me now, shouting, Shouting the war cry, the Bible says. Now, I reckon on day one, you know what the war cry was supposed to do? Intimidate the opposition. They'd line up and they'd go, and bang their swords on their shields and we're going to intimidate you. 
day one, maybe it was a little bit intimidating until Goliath did his thing. There's an evening. Day two, day... Like, at what, at what point did the war cry sound hollow? They did it for... They did it 80 times for 40 days, morning and evening. They did a war cry before they all slunk off in fear. Now, this is so true about our lives because at our most noble point, we'll go, like for those who are followers of Jesus, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We'll sing like we did this morning, we are overcomers and yeah, we'll do the roar cry. Yeah, he's conquered sin and hell and death. Yeah, he's, yeah, we'll do our war cry. But then we walk out the doors and someone lifts an eyebrow at us. You Christians like, I'm not sure anymore. Really? Can I put a word on that? It's called pathetic. <laughs> Do you understand what that word means? Pathetic. The Christian, I don't, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, right across the nation, as far as a Christian helping another person put their trust in Jesus, it takes a hundred Christians showing up on a weekend. Uh, a church with about 100 Christians on a weekend, which actually means there's about 200 of them annually to see one person cross the line. That is Australian Christianity. Did you realize that? 200 Christians who've got no idea how to help someone. They'll sing the war cry. Because it's so scary and it's hard and it's difficult. And there's a Goliath that's shouting between their ears. So, the text goes on and says, As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine uh, champion from Gath stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance and David heard it. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left the things for the keeper of the supplies. And he ran to the battle lines. He's just a teenage boy. And asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion of Gath, stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever, look at this, whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. The shout of Goliath has the capacity, and now I'm talking about the Goliath in your head, has the capacity to turn on your heels. You have it. I have it. We all have it. Please don't be in denial about this. Everyone's got a voice in the head. I'm not talking like a psychiatric condition with notable... I'm not talking about schizophrenia here. God bless you if you struggle with that. Tough gig uh, to manage. I'm actually talking about what the bulk of the population has, which is a non-auditory self-talk, which has a defeatist attitude. It has a negative tone, a negative tenor. It is an extremely rare person, and I mean extremely rare, who has a positive edge in that self-talk space. You're a rare fish if that talk in that space has got a positive edge to it, and it caused people to spin on their heel. So here's, uh, here's just briefly where I want us to go today. I'm talking about killing the Goliath in your mind. There's a, a lovely little verse from the Bible. <clears throat> oh, sorry. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm going to jump forward, and then I'm going to come back to that. There's a lovely little verse in the Bible where it speaks about laying a hold of this domain. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, where it says... We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. 
that battle takes place between your ears. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. We take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Now, if you're going to take a thought captive, you're going to have to be able to recognize it in the first place. You're going to have to be able to recognize. Have you ever even, like I'm heating up the value right now, trying to increase self-awareness, but have you ever even realized the sort of the nature of the self-talk you do that becomes your life narrative? It's, it's, it's your self-image. It's, it's the way you think about yourself and who you are and what you are and whether or not you'd be prepared to face a challenge or not or whether you're going to spin on your heels and do a runner. And so this, this here speaks about taking every thought captive. Now, you're going to have to recognize it first. I got onto a plane, true story, got onto a plane from Adelaide to Melbourne once. I had this seat on the aisle. There was an empty seat, and then there was a lady sitting by the window. And when I arrived, she was already there, and she was shaking and crying. I did that little, you know, people are still onboarding. I did that little, do I ignore this, or do I do something about this moment, you know? Quick lightning prayer to God, you know, what do I want me to do? She's shaking and crying. And so I, leaned, I looked over and I said, uh, are, you, are you okay? And she said to me, uh, she said, I have a phobia of flying, uh, but my daughter in Melbourne has uh, had a baby. And uh, so, um, but I'm having, I'm having a panic attack, she said. I went, okay. I did another little, little lightning prayer and I said, I'm, I'm a pastor. Um, would you like me to pray for you? And she said, oh, that would be nice. I said, like right now. You happy for me to put my hand on your shoulder? She said, yes, that would be nice. So I leaned over the empty seat and I put my hand on her shoulder. And I, I start praying for this lady, like for 45 minutes. No, I didn't know. Just say a real quick prayer, but just reminding her and praying to God that she was known, she was loved, her life mattered, that God had demonstrated how much he loved her in Jesus, and that she could feel safe on the plane. Simple little prayer. Amen. She might have said amen, I can't remember. Anyway, it was the worst, one of the worst flights I've ever been on in my life. We hit some kind of storm front. If you didn't have your seatbelt on, you would have been breaking your neck off the ceiling. Like that plane bounced around everywhere. It was a terrible flight. I actually thought I was going to be nauseous. And, and I'm, 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 my prayer changed at that point. And I'm like, oh, God, please don't let me vomit. It will so discredit every prayer I prayed to this lady right saying, help me. I was probably white as a ghost. I felt horrible. But you know what? And now, and normally, if that would have been a normal flight, uh, I've flown hundreds of times. I'm totally relaxed walking on a plane. I don't, I don't even think about a plane crashing, getting on a plane. I get on a plane, I'll read a book, I'll watch a movie, I'll sleep, snooze, whatever. I feel absolutely relaxed getting onto a plane. I have confidence in the plane. She had n absolutely no confidence in, in the plane. But you know what? We both arrived at the same time in Melbourne. Because our trust was put into the same plane. Uh, faith is an attitude of trust that allows a third party to act on your behalf. Do you realize that? Faith is an attitude of trust that allows a third party to act on your behalf. You put your faith in Jesus, you say, Jesus, you died on the cross for my sins. You acted on my behalf. You're putting your faith in a chair right now. Uh, those of you who are not holding up your weight with your thighs... I, look, I believe the chair can hold me, but I'm not acting in faith right now. It's just a belief I have. You're acting in faith. You've, you're adopting an attitude of trust in that chair that's allowing it to act on your behalf. It's holding you up. It's holding your weight. Now, 
that lady had just enough faith in the plane to get on board, but no more. I had tons of faith to get on the plane. No problem. What's the difference between having a lot of faith and a little faith, therefore? Like when the disciples said to Jesus, increase our faith, he said, oh, if you've got faith the size of a mustard seed, you'll move mountains, you know. Pointing out that it's the object of your faith, not the size of your faith, that's the most significant thing. Do you realize that? Like with a little bit of faith, I could walk out on thick ice like this, and it will still hold me because what I put my faith in is worthy. But with a lot of faith, I could walk out on thin ice like, hey, no problems, and I would fall through in faith because the object of my faith wasn't worthy of my trust. So what's the difference whether you've got a lot of faith or a little faith when you're going to stare down your Goliaths? Uh, the, the difference is if you'll be a frequent flyer with God, you'll be able to get on the flight a lot more confidently. If you'll develop a narrative in your life where you have put your trust in God so that he can act on your behalf, you'll be able to step into some risky scenarios. You'll say, God, you've been faithful in this. Here's my life narrative. Here's how many times you've been faithful in this. Here's how you have provided for me. Here's how you have healed and restored me. Here's how you've given me wisdom and courage in the moment. Here's how you've gone before me and guided me. And you've done it before. God, I'm going to believe you're going to do it again. And you step out with an attitude of trust that he's going to act on your behalf because you've got a narrative. And I guess I, I want to ask you today, have you got a narrative? Because that narrative will help you stare down some of those Goliaths. Look at what, the way uh, David, um, sorry, the way David did it. Look what he said as Goliath's doing the taunt. He said, I have done this to both lions and bears and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine as well. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. He had a narrative of faith. He, he, he'd, he had a pathway that he'd already walked, which developed something in him, which gave him the capacity to trust again in God. And while everyone was in the same scenario, here is the army, everyone's in the same scenario, everyone else for 40 days, twice a day, has been spinning on the hills and running, a teenage boy goes, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, I've seen God do this thing, this deal before. So I ask you, have you got a narrative? I ask you, have you even put your trust in Jesus yet? I had a roommate when I was at Bible College over in England. He was from Ethiopia. His name was Theophilus Testfire. He's a good fella, Theo. And um, I, I nicknamed him Most Excellent. He liked that. <laughs> if you know your Bible, Luke wrote Acts and Luke to the Most Excellent Theophilus. So I call him Most Excellent. He thought that was awesome. Now, he'd grown up through the communist coup of the early 1970s, and his dad was a pastor. His dad had been in prison. Theo himself had been in prison. And in fact, he, he said... Um, they, they gave warning the day before church, anyone who goes to church tomorrow will be sent to prison. So his dad got the family together and said, this is what the communist authorities have said. This is 1972 from memory of 73. The, the authorities said anyone who comes to church is going to be put in prison. And he said to his family, you don't have to come if you don't want to. Family said, we want to. So they then put it out across the congregation. Imagine Pastor Steve... Senior minister sends out a text for everyone, oh, um, just by the way, uh, there's, a, uh, there's a coup that's happening in Lonnie today, tomorrow, or it's already happening, and we've been told anyone who comes to Door Hope tomorrow is going to be taken to prison. You don't have to come if you don't want to. 
Well, attendance was higher than normal on that Sunday. And sure enough, the authorities came with their guns, circled the church, and marched everybody out. Then the, the town came and stood as the church got marched down the road towards the prison. A couple of the elders of the church started preaching the gospel, sharing the good news about Jesus to the village. And Theo said they were hitting them with the butts of their guns, telling them to shut up. And they said, no, no, this might be our last opportunity. You're not going to make us be quiet. When they got to the, when they got to the prison, they took everyone in. Uh, one of the elders who had been particularly vocal, they, uh, the prison warden said, I don't want him to come into the prison. And, and so they put a, a bucket of sand in each hand and they said, if you want to preach to everybody, and they have this low hedge of long thistles, it's a native plant, which is kind of like their razor wire. And they said, you can walk, you can preach your way through the hedge if you want to. And he did. And he did. Theo said he was locked up like that for weeks and weeks. And there were the 130 of them or so in this room. And he said it was so tight, everyone collectively could not put their bottom to their heels. So they had to do it in shift on who got to sleep. Once a day they were let out and all the defecation and all the nausea and all that stuff get hosed out and they get hosed down. The villagers are bringing them food and all that sort of stuff. And he's telling me this story and I'm amazed. I'm horrified. I'd been a Christian a little bit more than 12 months and I remember saying to Theo, Theo, I said, I'm not sure if I could do that. And he got this look on his face and he said to me, are you a Christian? It was a good question. I had an existential crisis of faith in that moment. You a Christian? And internally I'm like, thought I was? He says, part of the deal. Jesus said, he said, unless you uh, love me more than your father, mother, brother, sister, even your own life, you can't be my disciple. So you've got to be prepared to take it because every day, carriage, you've got to be yourself, might be my disciple. He said, who's going to set out to, this is all Luke 14, if you want to look it up later, uh, who's going to set out to build a tower if they can't finish it? Or who's going to go to war if they're not confident? Otherwise, who's going to make terms of peace? Jesus backs it up by saying, unless you give up everything you possess, <laughs> you can't be my disciple. He just laid it out there like that. So the, the, now this is going to freak some of you out if you were kind of thinking maybe you were journeying towards Jesus. You're like, well, I'm not sure if I am anymore. Well, at least that. Jesus did the really candid reveal. If you really are going to cross the line, it's going to cost you everything. You know, only a few decades back, if you said you're a Christian in Australia, it could even get you a job promotion and open up opportunities for you. You had traditional Christian values a few decades ago, five, six decades ago. might even help to get you a promotion at work. Those same values today will brand you immoral and it will close doors of opportunity are you prepared to be known as a follower of Jesus it's, it's, the, it's not the zeitgeist which is the, it's not the spirit of the day in Australia is it to say you're going to be a follower of Jesus so I don't know where you stand on all of that but if we're going to take our, our thoughts captive with the Goliath who shouts in our ears, with the, with the Goliath who says to us, no one's interested out there, because that, and that's just a lie that, that nobody's interested. If anything, actually, right now in Australia, I want to speak now to those who have put their trust in Jesus. The, the opportunity in Australia right now is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. A mate of mine who's a, a chaplain in a school pre-Easter had the year nine students in small circles talking to one another, government school, what's Easter about? 
And as he walked around, he watched one young girl lean out of her circle. She leaned into the circle behind her, and then he watched her come back to her circle, and she said, the group here thinks it's got something to do with God. And then they collectively shrugged their shoulders and said no. Unreached people group in Australia. There's, what is it, 80, one and a half million Aussies who say they do not know a Christian. The opportunity is phenomenal in Australia. It's kind of like two shoe salesmen who've been sent to a different country into a tribal context to sell shoes. One calls back to the company and says, there's no point, they don't wear shoes. The other one calls back and he says, the opportunity is amazing. Nobody is wearing shoes yet. What sort of mindset do you bring to your faith as an Australian follower of Jesus in this day and in this age? So I want to let you know the opportunity is phenomenal. They're not wearing shoes yet. And what's more, uh, that, that sense of um, the self-talk, the Goliath, which says, oh, I, I can't do it because that is the only traffic we've ever put across that highway between who our sense of awareness and our identity and our life history of experience. And we've tried kind of repeatedly, tried and failed, or not tried at all, but it's never, ever been you. You've never helped anyone to put their faith in Jesus. We saw someone witness to their faith in Jesus today because someone crossed that chicken line. Somebody stepped out. Somebody had a go. And if I was going to just equip you with one really simple and little idea that we find is incredibly powerful, this little line, I'm looking for someone to read the Bible with. I don't know whether you'd be interested. And there's a way of doing that, and you can go and check that out online if you want to, called Discovery Bible Method, if you go to the Crossway website, if you want to have a look at that. But we, what we're seeing, so last year, just last year, and you can only get your name on this list, you need a name, contact details, and a story saying, I've never done this before. We call the first time commitment list. 442 people's names hit that list just last year. It was about that many the year before. It was about that many the year before. Just with commoner gardener Aussie people realising there's a phenomenal opportunity out there as we've stared down the Goliath. We've taken our thoughts captive. We recognise them. And so I'm not even sure what kind of your Goliath narrative is. I'm, I'm taking it into a, a domain there. But whatever the Goliath that shouts in your mind is, take that wriggly little pathetic serpent thing captive and speak truth to it. If you've put your trust in Jesus, you say to that thing that's saying you're pathetic and you're useless and you take it and you say, the Bible says I'm a son or a daughter of the living God. When that wriggly little thing tries to declare you dirty and a failure, you take a hold of that thing and you say, the Bible says I'm forgiven. When that thing says you can't, you say, the Bible says I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. You say, when it, when, it, when it says God doesn't pay any attention to you, you say, Jesus says, no, sparrow lands on the ground. My father knows about it. I'm much more important than a sparrow. When he says, you have no future and a hope, you say, the Bible says, I will give you a future and a hope. It, 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 we need to be prepared to change the narrative that takes place in our brain. And I want to say to anyone who's here today or who's watching us online, you've been doing the journey no, if you're physically present here today, you've clearly been doing the journey a little bit. 
you've been doing a little bit of a faith journey, and you're therefore pointing kind of in the direction of Jesus. And I want to say to you, you are known, you are loved, your life matters. The potential of you being forgiven and washed clean and given a fresh start because of what Jesus has already done for you exists. It's not an invitation to be religious. It's funny, you know, sometimes we reject that which we don't need to reject. You're not being invited to be religious. You're being invited into a relationship. You're being invited. There is a better version of you with Jesus that is forgiven, that's washed clean, that's given a fresh start, bright eyes as you look at the future with hope. Um, so I'm a visitor in this environment, but your senior minister gave me permission. Can I invite us all just to simply bow our heads? And if you, in your own heart of hearts, say, I have already put my trust in Jesus and I know it, what he did on the cross, he did for me, I ask you now to fill this room with your prayers in case there's one person here who's uncertain about that. Pray for that person right now. You might not even know who they are. But if you are that person and you're uncertain about your standing with God, I want to speak to you right now and I want to say this to you. Ball is in your court. Ball's in your court. God's already done what needs to be done. He loves you. He knows you. He loves you. He's for you. You can't outsin him. You have an opportunity to put your trust in Jesus, to adopt an attitude of trust where he acts on your behalf. And you can say in your heart of hearts, Jesus, what you did on the cross, you did for me. And now as best I know how, I'm putting my trust in you. Find some simple prayer in your heart. Jesus, I'm saying yes to you right now. As best I know how, I'm stepping over the line. I've been on a journey, but today's my day. And God in heaven, I pray right now that you'd really put that call on people's hearts. Now, if that's you, while others have their heads bowed and are praying for you, I'm going to do, ask you to do something really bold, to acknowledge to yourself, to acknowledge to God and to me, I want you to lift your face and raise your hand on the count of three. Say, today's the day I crossed the line and I put my trust in Jesus. And it might only be you. But I want you to lift your face so you can see and I want you to acknowledge it with me and say, yeah, today's my day. So are you ready? If today you're putting your trust in Jesus on the count of three, raise your hand high. You ready? One, two, three. Raise your hand high. Yes, oh, oh, wow. Man, lift your face as well. Lift your, I want to see your face. Ma'am, ma'am, sir up the back. Sir here with a beard. Ma'am back there. Lady here, love you. That's good. Mate over here. Another lady over here. Just raise your hand high. You go, yeah, today's my day. Today's, back over here in the back row. Bless you, ma'am. I see you. Over here. Good on you. That's awesome. Say, today's my day. Over here. Bless you. Today's my day. Mate, yeah, I see you there. Yeah, throw it up high. Is today your day? Now, raise your hand high. You go, yeah, today. Today's my day. Today I'm putting my hand, my trust in Jesus. So, Father, for each person who today, by faith, seeks to respond to you, I pray by your Holy Spirit, you'd make that real in their hearts. For the glory of your name, the Bible says that all of heaven celebrates over one sinner who repents. So how about as a church family right now, how about we just put our hands together and celebrate with those who today seek to, to take a faith step. Bless you. 
Bless each one of you. I know that doesn't come out of nowhere. I know that comes because God's touching your heart and you've probably been on a journey with a friend. Before you leave today, tell somebody. Now, we're about to do something that is so connected to what you just did. We're about to have communion together. Jesus instituted this. In the Last Supper, it was within 24 hours of him getting crucified. He took bread and he broke it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And he took a cup after supper, it says, and he said, this is my blood, which is new, this, it's a new agreement, a new covenant, poured out for the forgiveness of many. Now, if you've just put your trust in Jesus, the significance of what we're about to do is really big for you. And I invite you, and whether or not you had the courage to raise your hand there or not, hand there or not but the these elements the communion stewards are just about to distribute these and when they come past you you have a choice to take them or to let it pass by taking them you're saying what Jesus did on the cross he did for me yes by letting it pass you're saying I've stand, I choose to stand outside of what Jesus has done now, if you have put your trust in Jesus, communion is for sinful people. It's not that you're good enough. It's not whether you've had a good week or not. It's really, we take it and we say, like the rest of humanity, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. So you, you take that in your hands if, if that's where you're up to in your faith. And then at your leisure, you give thanks in your heart for what Jesus has done for you and you eat it and drink it. Could the communion stewards please bring that around now?